I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. If you're anything like me, you'll have been enjoying the longer days that spring has brought us. The average length of daylight is now roughly 15 hours and we can all enjoy more time for gardening into the evening. But have you ever spent much time thinking about what happens when darkness sets in and we're all tucked away inside? Photosynthesis may cease as the sun sets, but it doesn't necessarily mean the action has stopped. In fact, in the inky darkness, some flowers actually open up and bloom, and there's a whole other world of wildlife and pollination that comes to life at night. In this episode, we'll be diving into the darkness with Sally Pettit, who will be sharing how Cambridge University Botanic Garden managed to get the first ever moonflower, or Selenocereus wittii, to bloom in the UK. And we'll be taking to the night sky with Shirley Thompson, to talk about the world's only flying mammals, bats. Back in the daylight, we'll also be taking a trip to the greenhouse for more edible growing tips from RHS Hyde Hall's Matthew Oliver, who will be covering beefsteak tomatoes, delicious at any time of the day. So welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Let's begin with Shirley Thompson. Since 1983, Shirley has been at the forefront of protecting bats in the UK. She has created important educational resources on bats, and after becoming the Honorary Education Officer for the Bat Conservation Trust, she was awarded an MBE. Bats are such fantastic creatures. It's always such a delight to catch them on a summer's evening as they flit up and down my garden, taking flies and mosquitoes, and perhaps, who knows, doing a little pollination as they go. Over 500 plant species worldwide rely on bats to pollinate their flowers, including species of agave. And yet many people are afraid of bats, seeing them as suspicious night dwellers. Here's Shirley to issue the only caution required. I do tend to give people a warning about bats because if you get interested in them, you really can be hooked because they're just such fascinating animals. I'm Shirley, Shirley Thompson, and I've been involved in bats a very long time, right from way back in the early 1980s when they were first protected. When I first became interested, it really was in response to the need for volunteers to talk to people about any problems they had or concerns about bats, because there was a change virtually overnight from bats being considered a pest species 
which you could get rid of legally, to a protected species for which you could be legally in trouble if you tried to get rid of them. And they needed volunteers to go out and help people understand them more. It's really nice the way so many people are feeling this way more and they're realizing what an important part of the environment they are. But I still say that one of the most important things you can do to help bats is to try and pass that feeling on, that positive feeling about them to other people. Because there's still, sadly, some people who feel a little bit nervous about them because they don't know much about them. And if you can try and highlight that they are the good guys, they really are, you know, stars of the night. It just seems so amazing that a tiny creature, I mean, a pipistrelle, the bat that you're most likely to see in the garden, an adult pipistrelle would fit into a standard matchbox. <laughs> and, and they may not be very comfortable, but it would fit in no problem. And that little creature has everything in it that we have. It has a full you know, system of, of blood and breathing, all the rest of it. It's all there and plenty of brain as well, that they're clever as animals. And then when you think that that adult pipistrelle can have a tiny baby, it's, it's just quite staggering. <laughs> What's about friendly garden? Well, bats being the only flying mammals, they use far, far more energy than any other mammals, you know, in the most extreme physical activity. And of course, to produce energy, you need fuel. And in our UK bats, that fuel is insects. So the really important thing one has to remember is to try and encourage loads of insects to your garden, a diversity of insects and insects as much as possible through the year. One of the things that people so often ask about is what plants should I put in the garden? And so rather than thinking of a few specific flowers, I like to encourage people to think of the form of flowers, the different shapes and the different way in which the food, which the insects are after, the pollen and the ne nectar, is presented. If you think of a flower like any daisy-like flower, it has lots of tiny little florets. And if you have pipistrelles, they can actually feed on the insects that feed on them because only short-tongued insects will feed on those flowers. So your daisy-like flowers will attract your smaller insects and hence attract your smaller bats. Now, if you think of a honeysuckle, a single flower has a long tube so that only an insect with a very long tongue can feed on it, your moths and your butterflies, or those will inevitably be larger insects. No way could a pipistrelle feed on those. The same is true of bees, that some bees have short tongues and some have long tongues. And so again, you want a diversity of flowers that will make the um, nectar or the pollen actually accessible to a wide range of insects. If you use insecticides, in your garden, then that's a double-edged sword for bats because not only are they reducing the number of the insects that they need to eat, but there will always be some insects that aren't quite knocked out by the chemical. And 
when you realize that even the smallest bats may eat hundreds or even thousands of insects in a night, then if a small proportion of those are carrying that residue of, of pesticide, that can build up in the bat. That's even worse after the winter when they hibernate and as they metabolize that the, the level of the chemical will actually become stronger and stronger so that when they come out of hibernation, when they're at their weakest, that can really hit them. And many weak bats are found at that time of year. So yeah, there is no need to use chemicals at all. Why should you have bats in your garden? I think the greatest thing to have bats in the garden to be perfectly honest, is just the joy of having them there and knowing that you are helping. Thank you, Shirley Thompson. And home gardeners have certainly been helping. When you've got a bat box in your garden or a pond that attracts insects, you've been doing your bit and contributing to the stable and growing numbers of bats in the UK. It's a symbiotic relationship because the bats are helping you back in kind. They'll eat a whole host of annoying pests, from mosquitoes to midges. Rather than picking them off foliage like slower predators, bats use echolocation to home in on their prey and catch insects on the wing. To improve your chances of witnessing this chase in action, get rid of any bright artificial outdoor lighting. If you're looking for any further information on bats and how to make your garden friendly to them, check out our show notes, where we posted links to some handy guides on the RHS website. Now, when the sun goes down, it's not just wildlife that wakes up. There exists a whole array of flowers that choose the cover of darkness as the perfect time to erupt and bloom. The science behind this is fascinating. Most pollinators, including beetles, bees and hoverflies, get to work during daylight. And as such, that's when most flowers bloom. But some pollinators, including various species of moth, are night dwellers. And some bright white flowers, seeking to take advantage of this lack of competition, have also become nocturnal. And one such flower is the moonflower which bloomed for the very first time in the UK at Cambridge University Botanic Garden. I'm Sally Pettit, Head of Horticulture at Cambridge University Botanic Garden. This is the story of how we got the moonflower to flower for the first time in the United Kingdom. The proper name for the moonflower in this case is the Lenicerius whittii. And it's an extraordinary plant. It's a member of the Cactaceae family, but it's not prickly and it doesn't look like one of those Arizonan cacti that you're familiar with from those fantastic cowboy movies. It's something far more peculiar that comes from the Amazon forest in floodland areas. And it has such a short window of flowering, we believe, because doesn't actually have a whole host of energy. So most flowers and plants require lots and lots of energy that they get from the soil and that they store in their leaves and petals. The moonflower doesn't really have that kind of reserve of energy because of its situation and it being an epiphyte. So it really has to kind of gather all of its energy to produce flowers that will only last a very short time because it can't support flowers that are long lasting. 
So part of our role is to grow a wide range of plants from around the world. And our glasshouse supervisor had been visiting Bonn Botanic Garden and had been trying to identify plants there that we might be able to grow here in Cambridge and saw the moonflower and knew we didn't have anything like it. And so was able to bring material from Bonn Botanic Garden over to Cambridge where we were able to develop it. So once our plant arrived from Germany, we were able to decide where we wanted to grow it in the garden. And it really needed to be in a tropical house so that it had a humid, moist, warm environment. And we had a look at the plants that we grow there and decided it would be very well suited to be grown on a plant called Pachyra aquatica, which is also a Brazilian plant and one of the hosts that the moonflower would grow on. But because it came to us as just a kind of very flat, glossy, leafy pad, we had to attach it to a tree. So we actually bound it around the stem of the Pachyra or water chestnut. And it quite quickly began to develop new pads and start climbing. It was then just a case of watching it, seeing it grow and getting it to the point at which it did develop a flower bud. It's always very exciting when you spot something that you think might be developing its first flower, particularly when it's something that may not have flowered before in the United Kingdom. And there's a great sense of excitement, but also it's quite daunting because you then think, well, are we going to come up with the goods? We were then keen to try and understand when it might flower because at the time the glass houses were closed to visitors because of COVID. And we then had the great dilemma of how do we share this wonderful flower with visitors or, you know, interested viewers, et cetera, et cetera. So we knew that the flower or the bud reaches maturity at about 25 to 30 centimetres in length. So it develops a very, very long tube from which the flower bursts. And we had a process of measuring the flower, which seemed quite strange, you know, 12 foot up in the air, up a ladder every day, trying to measure it to estimate when it was going to come into full bloom. And so we got a sense of when it was going to happen, but we still had to address the question of how to share this wonderful flowering and eventually decided that because we couldn't have everybody in the glass houses, we would try and do live streams which was a huge triumph. It was amazing. It was extraordinary how many viewers we got from around the globe to not just watch the one night flowering, but to actually follow its progress. The build-up and anticipation really came to this great kind of climax or head. And I think during COVID, it was, you know, there was a lot of negativity for everybody. So having something that was quite so positive really, really played into our hands. It opened in the afternoon, so we were really expecting it to be, you know, to burst into full flower at night. And actually it started opening over time, but got to about two or three o'clock in the afternoon. We we're like, no, this is it. It's arrived early almost because everyone's expecting it to flower actually at night when it was dark and it opened pre-darkness. So <laughs> yeah, it took us by surprise in the end. The full flower structure is about 25 centimetres long. And so you have this, it looks like a green stem. And then there's this very spidery looking flower, which is white, many petals and just gorgeous. Um, but it has quite a sweet scent when it first opens. So yeah, and particularly because we were doing our mainstream in the evening with lights, etc., fixed up in the glass houses, which were pitch black it really added to that special appeal of that flower. 
later in the evening, so approximately nine or 10 o'clock, the sweet fragrance started to fade and we were really aware of it becoming much less attractive. So by the next morning, it really was beginning to almost decay. It was beginning to brown, the petals were beginning to curl a bit. And it actually, after a day or two, it virtually disappeared. It was, yeah, it was really, really fleeting. The moonflower flowers specifically at night to attract pollinating moths that fly at night. But it's believed that there are only two hawk moths that actually pollinate the moonflower, both being native to the Amazon area. And night pollinators also occur here in our gardens in the United Kingdom. And there are a whole range of garden plants that we can grow that attract those pollinators. So a number of plants spring to mind immediately. So things like Nicotianas, Jasmine, evening primrose that all actually almost burst into flower in the evening and emit amazing fragrance to attract particularly moths as pollinators and so you can actually see this extraordinary relationship out in your own garden as well. One of my favorite plants that I grow at home is actually um, Nicotiana elata which is the white flowered tobacco plant and a number of the tobacco plants are scented but I think one of the lovely things about white-flowered Nicotiana is that as dusk kind of draws in, the white of the flower becomes much more vibrant and you can actually sit in your own garden and enjoy that fantastic fragrance because the fragrance also gets stronger in the evening as well. But I think this shows that anybody can actually grow something in their own garden that doesn't just have appeal because it's pretty, but also tells a story and actually you can watch those relationships develop with pollinators and other plants and other animals as well. I think there's so much certainly gardeners to get excited about in their own gardens. What a wonderful story from Cambridge University Botanic Garden. Like Sally, I'm also a big fan of Nicotiana. Taking a stroll past these beautiful white trumpets in the evening will knock you off your feet. I love the spicy scent of these flowers, and also, being white, very white indeed, they glow in the dusk. So if you're coming home late from work or from the allotment, you can enjoy them even though the sun is going down. Well, for our final feature, let's allow the sun to rise again. And that's predominantly for health and safety reasons as we're heading to the greenhouse. Last episode, Matthew Oliver introduced us to the multitude of edible crops he grows under glass at RHS Garden Hyde Hall. And he gave us pointers for growing your own melons. Today he's back with loads of useful advice for another showstopper. Hello, my name's Matthew Oliver. I am the horticulturist at RHS Garden Hyde Hall in the Global Growth Vegetable Garden. And today I want to talk about the beefsteak tomatoes that we grow in the central glasshouse. So the reason I want to talk about the beefsteak tomatoes is because they are a bit of a showstopper for us. You get massive sized fruits. Uh, normally deep red colour, sometimes orange and sometimes even pinks. And these are the tomato version of a giant pumpkin. These are the show-offs 
the ones that people stop and stare at and go, wow, oh my God, look at the size of those. And they can be fairly tricky to grow successfully for the home gardener. So I thought I'd just give you a few little tips on how we do it at Hyde Hall. So for us, I sow our tomato seed normally mid-February and have a good sized plant to plant out early to mid-April in the glasshouse. But if you haven't got the right propagation space at home or you're only growing a few little plants, it's often better and more economical to just go out and buy tomato plants. And now is a very good time to go out and do that. All the garden centres, all the RHS plant centres will stock tomato plants. And the joy of going out and buying them now is that if you're growing them in the glasshouse, it's generally the risk of them getting frosted or cold at night is beginning to pass. So you're more likely to get over the first stumbling block, which is plants getting a growth check or being killed by cold weather. So growing beefsteak tomatoes is a little bit more challenging than growing the cherry tomatoes or what I'd call your traditional sort of salad slicing tomato because the sheer size and weight of fruit puts more demand on the plant and it's got to put more energy into producing each fruit and more can go wrong. Now one of the classic problems that we get asked about all the time when growing tomatoes, it's not a disease but something called blossom end rot and that's where around the base of the fruit it goes brown and it starts rotting and you get that more commonly when you're growing beefsteak tomatoes because it's a symptom of a nutrient deficiency, normally either potassium or calcium. And if you are not feeding your plants often enough, or sometimes even if you're overfeeding them, this can cause this problem and you can get to a stage where you get to what looks like you're developing a really good beefsteak fruit that's developing and then it'll start rotting off at the bottom. That's the number one problem alongside watering obviously to produce a big fruit and need lots of water. So the way I get round this is I find it easier to grow the plants in the ground in soil beds rather than grow bags. You can grow beefsteak tomatoes in a grow bag or pot but it's more challenging. So if you can grow plants in a soil bed under glass they'll be have a bigger root system therefore more water uptake more nutrient uptake and essentially better fruiting so that's one thing we do another tip is again with the feeding it's much better to feed a low dose often rather than a real heavy dose infrequently as it were so the way I do this in our glass house is uh, we have a complicated system that you could describe as being fertigation where we water and feed at the same time. And I've got a special little machine that mixes up the feed and the water and pumps it out all through irrigation lines and it does it all for me on a timer and it's fantastic. Now if you're doing it at home, you're probably much better off if you've got a tomato feed, whether you're using a traditional tomorite or a liquid seaweed tomato food. I use a maxi crop tomato food, um, so it's liquid seaweed with a higher potassium level in it because potassium is what you need for good fruit development. And rather than going down this path of I'm only really there on a Saturday or a Sunday and that's feeding day and I haven't done it for a while so I'm going to put double amount in my watering can and hope for the best, 
you're much better off being there every other day and doing a quarter rate or a half rate feed and that evens out the fluctuations in nutrient and therefore more likely to get a better formed fruit. The other problem is if you're using a very high potassium feed for your tomatoes and you think you're doing the right thing by going high, wide, thick and heavy with it and doing double dose all the time, is that can trigger the plant to take up too much potassium at the detriment to some of the other micronutrients like calcium and magnesium that also a big player in fruit development. So by overfeeding a traditional tomato food, you can end up doing more harm than good. If you feed in your plants and you're feeding them with your tomato food and you're still getting problems, then ease back on the high potassium feed and you could, a tip that I do, that not many people do on their tomatoes where it's all liquid feeds at the root, you could do a foliar feed of Epsom salts or cow mag products, so calcium and magnesium product. That's not strictly organic growing, but it means you can get some micronutrients into the plant really quickly through the leaf and solve any problems before they arise, basically. I used to have loads of problems with blossoming rot on beefsteak tomatoes until I started using a liquid calcium product that I foliar fed onto the leaves and just one or two treatments early in the year as the plants come into flower and the difference it made in fruit quality is amazing. So I think if you're growing in grow bags or pots at home and were struggling to produce a big fruit, a foliar feed early in the morning or late in the evening, not in the heat of the day, and making sure you're spraying the underside of the leaf, which is where all the stomata are, the cells that open up, where gas exchange takes place. If you can spray your liquid feed in those areas, you'll get it into the plant quicker, and you'll probably be able to keep a stronger, healthier plant, even on something that's got a very small root system. So there, that'd be my top tip for growing beefsteaks well is your feeding and watering regime. Some other tips for growing beefsteaks are, of course, you're unlikely to find a bush tomato that will produce a fruit of that size. They're nearly all cordon plants. So to get maximum fruit size, your plant training needs to be correct. So train one stem up a bamboo cane. If you're growing under glass, about six foot high is about right. So tie one stem in up the cane remove any side shoots that appear in the leaf axils. And if you're growing in a glass house with beefsteak tomatoes, you'll probably get four to six flower trusses form. And what you'll find, or what I've found, is that the first flower truss that forms, they're the ones where you get massive, great big fruits. The biggest fruits will form near the bottom of the plant or in the middle of the plant. And as you get towards the end of the season, the fruits on the trusses near the top of the plant, they will be smaller because the plant will be starting to run out of puff and run out of daylight as we get into the back end of the summer. And having that weight of fruit in the middle of the plant with one stem, it can make them very top heavy. So make sure you've got a really good stout cane. If you're growing in a pot or a grow bag, you won't be able to get that cane all the way in the ground. So some other string or tire supports that have framed the glass house will probably help. Probably don't need to be supporting individual fruits in any way. But if you've got one that's really, really heavy, it could be worth getting some sort of support underneath them, much like what we would do with a melon. And what you'll find as well 
if you can harvest the fruits near the bottom or the middle of the plant at the perfect stage of ripeness, don't leave them on the plant for too long, then by removing that fruit, it will trigger the plant into putting this energy into fruit higher up the plant. So don't leave fruit on the plant for too long because those fruits will carry on taking all the goodness at the expense of the ones further up. So if you like the sound of growing your own beefsteak tomatoes, then some good varieties to go for. The ones I've had success with in recent years are, they're easy to remember because there's one called Big Mama and Big Daddy. And if you can't remember those, then uh, you're probably gonna struggle. Uh, those two have done really well for me in the past. And another one, which I found quite interesting, is one called Big Pink, which has got more of a pink flushed flesh or skin to it it's not that deep red so there's two or three that i think are worth having a go with the joy of growing these beef steaks i suppose is it's just that sense of achievement that you've managed to produce something so massive and so tasty as with all things grow your own you will notice the difference in flavor big beefsteak tomatoes slice them up if you grow them well you can have one slice of it is big enough to fill a whole sandwich or a whole burger and you really will notice the difference in flavor so have a go. Thanks, Matthew. I hope everyone's stomachs are growling at the thought of a great homegrown beefsteak tomato. I'm very fond of beefsteak tomatoes. And on my allotment, I have a neighbour called Mario who comes from Italy and he specialises in very large tomatoes. So every year he gives me a couple of plants that grow these monstrous tomatoes that can reach 500 grams or larger. They're sweet and succulent and he saves seed every year and uh, it's been going on for some years now. So I think he's going to have to commercialise the strain as Mario's enormous. For more insight from expert growers like Matthew, Make sure you subscribe to the podcast as we continue our Growing Under Glass series over the coming weeks. Well, that's about it for this episode of the podcast. I'm certainly looking forward to sitting out in my garden as dusk falls. It's true there's the hum of the M25 in the distance, but I like to think of that as waves breaking on the beach. Until next time, from me, Guy Barter, thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50.
With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.